HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Diet Green. I'm Max Sussman. And I'm Kate McCabe. We've got an awesome show for you guys today. We're just carrying on, you know, we're just back. We're continuing to be back after our little break here. We've got the founders of Bloss and Heron, the Irish Food Awards, on the show today. And honestly, what better way to get at what's happening in Irish food and talk about how it's changed than to talk to those who have been paying really close attention to the producers of Irish food products and tasting and talking about and giving awards to the best of what's out there right now. Artie Clifford and Fallon Moore are the founders of Blossom Heron, which in English are the Irish Food Awards. And Max knows more than anybody else how suspect I am of... All awards? Uh, Most award ceremonies, (laughs) although I have to say that I watch the Oscars every year. Kate's a skeptic, but a healthy healthy skeptic nonetheless. I think a lot of times award shows are really just marketing experiences for corporations or ways to advertise. But I'm really happy to share that the Irish Food Awards are absolutely nothing like that. Yeah, we're like the Olympic Games inspectors, and we went behind the scenes, and we did a deep dive. Not really. We just talked to them, and we learned a lot about the food tasting and testing process. It was quite fascinating. Quite fascinating. The Irish Food Awards are really kind of a microcosm of the Irish food scene in general. And Artie and Fallon have created a really incredible program where they not only champion the best of the best in Ireland, but they also give back to the uh, food producer community through educational programs and expert feedback on people's contributions to the awards. So it's it's kind of an experience that goes full circle. And one of the big, you know, we've talked to so many people on this show that are involved in so many different parts of, you know, what you what we could call the food industry or the food systems from growers to chefs and everything in between but the food awards are actually they're really important and it's very important for people that are making food to have uh recognition in their own field and among their peers food awards are really a sign of like what we call like a a grown-up food uh, a grown-up food world because it, it means that there's more than one person doing the same thing and there's some healthy competition there to see who's doing it the best. Without further ado, our interview with Artie and Fallon of Blasna Heron. Viv is really excited about food too. Here we go. Thank you both so much for coming on Diet Green today. Thanks for having us. I actually wanted to start out talking to you about Dingle. I'm wondering if you could tell, for people in the United States who have never been there before, if you could tell them a little bit about what the town is like and whether that played any kind of role in the inspiration for Blana Heron. Okay, so uh, Dingle is a small fishing village um, located on the 
westerly point of the Dingle Peninsula. When you get out to the end of the peninsula, it's as far west as you can go in Europe. You exclude the mainland, exclude Cape St. Vincent, but this is as far west. So the nearest parish west to Dingle is Halifax. So it's a beautiful place, very mountainous. Fishing, agriculture and tourism. But what makes it beauty, it's it's got a natural beauty, scenic. Um, but I think it's the people and the culture. Dingle is home. It's a Gaeltacht area, so, you know, we speak two languages. And it's still retained the old style of a, you know, country town. It's very busy um, during the tourist season, which is probably 12 months of the year now. But this is the quiet time. So January, February is quiet. We have a lot of very good eateries here and producers. They've recently banded together as Bia Kirkagina or Bia Dingle, which is a sustainability group which works with the producers locally and the fishers locally and the outlets. So the aim is that um, you'll taste Dingle on a plate. So whether it be the fish or the vegetables, whether it be the beer, the whiskey, we're very fortunate. We've got two breweries and a distillery. Uh, plenty of fish, plenty of lamb, plenty of beef. So we could actually put a border at the end of the peninsula and survive. Happily. <laughs> very happily. That's great. We actually have a very special food memory from Dingle. We have a son who's seven years old named Aloysius, and we were driving down the Wild Atlantic Way, I guess it was five years ago, and we ate at a restaurant. I don't actually remember which one it was in Dingle, and he ate fish eyes for the first time, and it remains one of his favorite things to eat, and it, it's just kind of funny because neither Max nor I enjoy eating fish eyes, but he asked to try them, and we let him, and he loved it, so I always think about, uh, yeah... Well, I wonder which one it was. Probably mask. I think it could have been mask. Um, yeah, which is closed now. Um, there's a lot of change. Uh, COVID brought a lot of change to the structures of the businesses here. One of the things is because property is so expensive here, it's very difficult to find rental, short-term rental accommodation for staff. So they've changed a lot of their models. But I mean, what I would say is um, because we were in the bed and breakfast business for a number of years and we would be asked by our guests where they could eat. And we would say, well, the first question is, what would you like to spend? Because wherever they go, we can tell them the food is going to be good to whatever they're willing to pay for. You know, the saying we have here is there's no such thing like good food is not expensive. Bad food's expensive. So uh, we're very proud of um, all our offerings here. And over the number of years, you know, it can be from takeaway, from fish and chips takeaway to fine dining. And we have, I think, currently 32 restaurants. And maybe probably 30. We used to have 52 pubs. But um, some of them have changed over just into pure restaurants and some of them have closed. But for a population of uh, just under 2,000 people, 52 bars is pretty good. Impressive, yeah. So <clears throat> you mentioned how things have changed uh, you know, recently, and we wanted to kind of go back a little further and talk about what things were like in, I believe, 2008 when everything got started for you. What was the inspiration for creating the Irish Food Awards? Okay. Um, and sorry that I'm answering all the questions. Um, but... Back in 2007, I was a food producer and I was having a conversation with another food producer about the difficulty of getting accreditation by our peers here in Ireland because there was no there was no accreditation scheme. So typical Irish, because it wasn't there, we started it. So I started it. Uh, our first year was 2007 and uh, very small maybe 400 entries, 32 categories. And then it's a non-profit organization, which my wife will give out about for the first eight years, there was no wages paid. But it's a passion. 
and and it's passion for passionate people. So the producers are very passionate. So they now can get an accreditation, which is a badge of honor, uh, which means a lot to them. It's the clap on the back. As I said, I was a producer and you're head down, butt up, working away and nobody's saying you're doing a good job. So it's initially started out as just a recognition of a job well done, but it has grown. So in the past year, we had nearly 3,000 entries and our categories have expanded up to, I think, up until yesterday, I think 146. And how has the infrastructure to manage all that grown? I would imagine it started off maybe just the two of you or the three of you. And now is there a staff involved? Is there offices? Like how have things kind of grown as the number of entries and categories have grown? Well, I suppose to give you an idea of when it first started, because when dad had first founded it, we were really brought in kind of for the weekend or the couple of weeks in advance of the awards. And to give you an example of how much it's grown is in 2010, when I got married, we got married mid-September and the awards always take place the end of September. So I was able to get married, go on honeymoon and come back and slot into the events. Whereas now you couldn't dream of taking a day or two in September. It's a really, we're fortunate in that our team is still very small. There's ourselves and we have another colleague who works with us, Ali, who joined the team last year. And throughout the year, the team stays very small, but we have a really good network of people that swell in to work with us, whether it's during the judging, which takes place through the summer and it takes it takes almost two full months at this stage now to do that blind tasting or whether we're doing the events, at which time I think we have a team of probably about 50 who yep. pull together to get the events pulled together and all of the different venues and activities that we have going on. So we're still a very small team, but with a huge amount of support around us that we're... But, but with a lot more work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> small team with a lot suppose, more to do. Um, Fallon mentioned there the judging, and I think the judging is the most important part of it. And back in the day, we didn't see a judging system for food, especially multi-category, that was as fair as it could be. So we refer to ours as blind sensory analysis. And the blind is the only thing you get on the plate is a sample of the product and a number. Okay, so you get black pudding. Um, so it allows them, um, I suppose we've, we, we rank it in like 1 to 12 under several headings, so objective and subjective. So we bring in a range of judges. They judge a category. They don't know who the producer is. We've removed all the packaging, so the outer influence of whose it is and oh it's good because so and so makes it that's all taken away so we could have 32 black puddings and each of them represented as per they come out to each judge but there's six judges and six judges opinions and scoring is how that product does and we score down to uh 0.3 decimal places because sometimes we will see two products that are so, so close that they deserve to be accredited at the same level. Mm -hmm. You mentioned subjective and objective categories. What's the difference there? Like, And are those categories the same for different types of products or are they unique to each category? No. Um, from the multiple of all our products, the judging mechanism is the same. So you look at it and it's like appearance, texture, aroma, flavor, as you would any food. You know, if you're sitting down there, you know, you've served a lot of food in restaurants, Max, and you're saying, yeah, it looks good, smells good, tastes good, the texture's good. So they're all the objective ones. Okay. So then you move on to overall satisfaction, which is subjective. Are you satisfied in all areas with this and how would you score it and then the last question is um mass appeal and mass appeal is also subjective so i'm going to let fallon because she does a really good job of explaining mass appeal because it's the most difficult one to explain well it's 
I suppose it's the one that you get a question about when we're briefing the judges. And the judges will sometimes say, well, what does that mean? Do I do I think it'll sell well commercially or am I thinking about the business side of it? Is that what you mean by mass? And it's not because we don't take the commerciality of something into account in terms of the judging at all. But rather we're saying because the awards is about what would you put on your table? What what will be successful if you have this in your house? So with mass appeal, we would be saying, would you serve this to your family and friends? Is it something, you know, is it something that if this is in the press at home, that everyone in the family will want to eat or is it very specialist? And where it really comes into play is with something like a blue cheese, because if if I was tasting blue cheese, for example, and I like particularly strong flavoured blue cheese, but I'm tasting a mild one, it just gives me a little bit of room to acknowledge that actually if I was doing a cheese board and we had people coming over, this would have a place in it. So it gives you a little bit of space to kind of nod to that. Um, and I suppose that's where the success of the judging comes in finding products that people living in Ireland really like. <laughs> that's what that's what we're setting out to do. Yeah, yeah. and um, because we're allied to the university in Cork, our academic directors, they had a school there and it was himself and his colleagues with the university in Copenhagen who initially designed this blind sensory analysis system for multi-category foods. And in its third year, it became recognized as the global standard. So it's something that we're very proud of, but it has proven through, I suppose, the 16 years of facts and figures, because we go back to the numbers, not to the opinions, not to this judge said, oh, I liked it, and oh, I didn't like it. It's actually down to numbers, so we can quantify all the results. Just is, is the judging process enjoyable for the judges or after tasting 32 black puddings? Um, like what is, what is the, what's the subjective experience of, of, of being a judge? I'm curious. Okay. So I suppose there's the heavy lifting where there's 32 products. And then it's when you go to looking at reducing that down. So we do it in a generally in the university setting. Um, in sensory analysis boots. So you can taste, chew, smell, but you don't necessarily have to eat 32 black puddings. If I'm sure you've done it yourself in the kitchen. You know, you taste it and then you spit it out. Gotcha. So there is there is that. And the, the thing is, if we're doing multi-categories, we would set it out as if if they were doing four categories in a row, we would be very conscious of <clears throat> taste fatigue. So we would set it that there would be, we'll say if it was duck, okay? Well, duck could be followed with something that's going to cut the fat. So the next thing they're taste, it's, it's like a meal. So it's like having a sorbet, and we have used sorbet, especially on pork. Um, where they can cleanse their palates, you know, so. And I think the other the other way to answer that is our measure of whether the judges really enjoy it is that over, this is going to be the 16th year of the awards. And in some cases, we have judges who have taken part and worked with us every year as the judges. So they are coming back to, to take part because they just find it, I suppose some of the feedback we would get is that they find it really interesting or that they're curious to see what's coming through in that area, because although it's blind for them at the judging stage, we would often have, you know, if it could be a buyer from an independent retail store and they may have tasted something that day and they'll hand you like a piece of an envelope or a post-it where they have a number written on it. And they'll say, when you can tell me, will you tell me what that is? Because I want to know. And so we have, unusual to-do lists and kind of follow-up that runs right the way through to October. But for them, I mean, they keep coming back, so I think they are yeah. enjoying it. No, <clears throat> they're queuing up. So, like, and we don't, we have many panels. Like, we could have four to five panels. We could have 24 judges running at the same time in four panels. So you're not asking them to continually you know, um, come in every day. 
So our panels change all the time. And as Fallon has said, uh, they keep on coming back for more. So uh, it must be okay. But we don't judge. <clears throat> and the reason we don't is because we deal with the producers on a daily basis and we know all the things that are happening in their lives. Like if if Kate and Max had entered their tiramisu and we say, oh, they've just had a new baby and, you know, um, they're maybe not sleeping that well and, you know, we've got to allow for that. So we remove ourselves from... Blind tasting is all about removing the exterior influences. That's great. I was going through some of last year's past winners, and I noticed that, for example, Iran Bakery won all three medals for sourdough bread. I'm wondering, you know, how often does this happen where a single producer sweeps a category like that? Um, it happens. You'd probably maybe, you might see it twice or three times in the year. And Bart, who you're mentioning there, um, and the funny story about it is he won gold, silver, and bronze and supreme champion last year for the highest scoring product in the the, the awards of last year. And uh, he's originally Polish, I think. But I'm going like, well, that's natural. You know, Polish bakers, they do their apprenticeship. You know, they just don't open a shop. It's all about the history of it. And it turns out he's actually a butcher. <laughs> and his speciality trade is uh, cured meats, charcuterie. Wow. That must be some yeah. incredible bread. <laughs> but I suppose where that can happen with an entry is, or with a category, is because each entry is judged entirely on its own merit. And because it's yeah. being judged blind, if a producer enters more than one product, every one of those has the same opportunity. There's never a situation where you're going, Oh no, they've done well. So, you know, yeah. move somebody. It's just a case of the numbers and each entry has the same chance to rank. And sometimes what you see happening is a producer who's really pushing on their quality. And because of that, if they have two things or three things within the range, they will end up kind of placing close to their other entries in the ranking. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. How does something perishable like bread or, I mean, it's very hard to keep fresh and taste in its ideal state so how does a product like that actually go from where it's produced to where it's tasted? And is that something that you all are very involved in or just kind of suggest guidelines or are people driving these products up or shipping them? How's it work? Um, the easiest one if you picked, you know, the freshest of products. Mm -hmm. And our bread judging tastes place at a location in Dublin. And the one product that you've just picked is the one that doesn't work well with blind sensory analysis because as you know with bread it's the knock it's the cut you know so we have a team of a very specialist team they're from the university in dublin they come out to judge bread only so i suppose to answer your question is yes the deliveries are taken in up until 12 o'clock in the day and then the judges start at one o'clock so that bread that's freshly baked that morning is 
judged on the day of baking. Uh, we have the same policy with cream cakes. And then to expand it out onto other categories is we're taking deliveries at different times in different locations throughout the two months that we're in judging. And it is to enable them to, we'll say poultry. If poultry is due to be tasted and we've got two days of delivery, then we judge poultry that night. So is that it's allowing for the perishability of the goods um, and to judge them in their best format. It's a lot of logistics. It's a lot of logistics, a lot of steps, moving fast and you know, working with the judges to make sure they're lined up and ready to taste. Sounds sounds like it. I'm just curious, what's the strangest thing someone has entered? Have you ever had somebody enter something that maybe created their own category or we won't get into the strangest thing that someone has entered because I suppose that's someone's baby. You know, any producer sure. who has developed the product and have sent it, that is they put their heart and soul into it. And sometimes actually the really unusual things that we see coming through are on trend the next year. But we will tell you the strangest thing that someone has delivered because we were waiting for a product delivery to come in for judging and we were expecting stuffed mushrooms. And we opened the box from the company who make the stuffed mushrooms. So that's why that's what we were expecting to find in there. And we found some leather trousers and a Vivian Westwood jacket (laughs) that someone who worked in the company had done their online shopping returns and mixed the two boxes up. Wow. So we then, because this was at the judging stage, so we had to really work with that producer, but also with some kind of colleagues in the network of ours to get a sample, which was coming from the other side of the country to make sure that we could get it down to tasting so it was transferred between cars and there was all sorts of favors pulled in but it got tasted yeah but yeah the the jacket and the leather trousers was the most unusual to have arrived into us yeah (laughs) and unfortunately they were a tiny size so none of us could keep them (laughs) (laughs) that yeah that was one of my first thoughts actually when you said that Yeah. (laughs) yeah You mentioned like new trends just there. And I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about whether there are some unexpected foods that are starting to come onto the radar or if there's anything surprising in terms of new trends in Ireland and food that you're seeing through the work that you're doing. Well, certainly over a number of years, because we have the information going back 16 years of what was entered how categories grew and it it it's kind of we're we're generally ahead now there's now we've got a proper call there's five percent we've seen we'll say when we had the economic downturn the ready meal market suffered because people weren't grab and go they weren't working so there was a lot of changes in that uh, and then you saw the return to economic stability, and that followed through with a higher standard of ready-to-go foods because people were now conscious of aid or spend and their health. So we've seen a growth, although there is a, an increase in grab-and-go and ready meals, and there is an, an upturn in ready meals in the last 12 months here anyway, and I'm sure it's the same in the States, because people have conscious of their energy consumption. You know, I can heat a dinner in the microwave in five minutes. It'll take the oven an hour and 20 minutes to do the same dinner. So that's that's a thing. But to answer, Kate, the question, I suppose, at the heart of it is um, the trends, certainly the one I would say is heat. There's a lot more hot in our foods uh and it's getting hotter like in the beginning we didn't have a hot sauce category and now we've got a very competitive hot sauce category but even in sriracha's sriracha in bread do you know what i mean that they're looking for a bit more spice in their lives and i think that that's showing 
the younger generation who have a tolerance to it, because I'm old now and I have no tolerance for spicy food, but the younger people, and they're the ones with the purchasing power. So that's where you've seen the industry focusing, which is interesting. But there is an awful lot more focus on source and I suppose where your food is coming from. A lot of concentration on the health benefits of foods, a lot of increase in dietary specific foods. So they're all they're all things that we've seen throughout. And because our system we have a, a judging system which the health emergency forced us to move from paper to online. And the company we work with, the software company we work with very quickly created a judging system which could be worked on a judge's phone or tablet and it's a sliding score mechanism but the i suppose that the information behind that then tells us the age profile and the gender profile of the judge and you can actually look at a product and go a percentage likes this and a percentage likes this and you can identify them which to me i suppose it's information we'd never sell but it is for food academia it's hugely interesting and also for the producer because one of the really interesting ways that that came up was a producer who had entered a chocolate which hadn't come through to the final stage and asked us you know is there anything you can take a look at so we study the patterns and see is there anything we can feedback and in this case, we could see that for a small number of the judging panel, the flavor was dropping off completely. And it was a significant drop where everything else was scoring well. And I chatted to the producer about it. And he said, I wonder, I've made this flavor to recreate, you know, when you have a bowl of cereal and you have the milk at the end of the bowl and you tip the bowl into your mouth and you get that kind of malted milk flavor at the end of your cereal. He said, I wonder if that got anything to do with it. It's an unusual flavor. So then we drill down further. And our judges represent people who are here in Ireland at the minute, people who are living in Ireland and putting food on tables here. The judges where the flavor dropped off were people who had not grown up in Ireland and they had grown up in countries where they wouldn't have had dairy for breakfast like that. They just it wouldn't be a flavor they recognize. So for them, they kind of rejected that flavor. But for that producer, that information was so important because he had been trying to get that product out to people from all different areas and inside and outside of Ireland. And he said, actually, I'll just keep it now. I'll know that it will work for someone who's grown up here, but it's not going to be something that I'm going to be able to export or to offer to guests who haven't grown up here. So it was really interesting. I have a question about that I just popped into my head about categories. We were thinking about what to talk about and so focused on sort of growth and how much more there is and than there used to be. But have, have there been any categories that have just been removed and that our people are just no longer types of things that people are no longer interested in either making or eating? Or has it just been a kind of a continual additional process i don't know that we've had categories which have dropped off we've had one or two which have gotten smaller or where things have changed so for example the trend a few years ago pulled pork was we were seeing for one year that lots of things was pulled pork and then lots of the different meats were pulled and that just dropped off then quite a bit in entries there's still you might see someone who does it particularly well but for the most part, that has dropped off. I suppose it's one of those trends that we saw shut down quite quickly. The other thing which is probably noticeable is sweetness. Some products, the sweetness would have gone down. So rather than the category, yeah. people aren't expecting things to be as sweet, which then in turn affects maybe it could be shelf life on a product where people are using less sugar, so it's going to be a shorter shelf life on it. So it's not so much the category, but the makings up of it and things that have shifted within those. How trends change and mm. everything, everything like that. Does your pantry at home reflect 
the work that you do? Is it is it full of all these products and different types of things, or do you find that the way you cook has has stayed pretty much pretty steady? Uh, I would say my the way I cook has stayed fairly steady because the history of my family is we're all foodies. Um, my mother was a domestic science teacher, which is a culinary arts teacher. So from a very early age, we would have known these products. I suppose what has changed is we probably stock our pantry with the very best now. <laughs> That's good. You know? Yeah. So and I think what happens in our house quite a bit, my husband would joke that he can't compliment something in the press. He can't say, well, that's a lovely marmalade without me saying, do you know where that comes from now? And do you know, he was originally an architect or he'd say, can I just say it was nice? <laughs> but it's because that's what's interesting. We really get to hear the stories of the producers who are taking part. And that is, well, to me, it's really interesting. And it is to you too. I know. I think one of our marmalade winners one year was a lady who had retired. Her dog got ill and she got a vet bill. And she started making marmalade, played a vet bill. So uh, those stories, as I said before, that's why we remove ourselves from the, the judging, is our right. knowledge of the producers is so close and their circumstances. Do those stories find a way, do you, is there a way for those stories to come out once the, you know, once the judging process is complete? Do you yeah. find ways to share them? We're just, we're very active on social. So uh, on Instagram and Facebook over the last probably three weeks, mm -hmm. we've run a series called Meet the Makers. Oh, cool. Which would be very ha handy tool for you when you're traveling to Ireland next. We're going to go down um, that list and, and, and start a look at that list and see where season. you can go and what they're up to. Like my profile picture is uh, Meeting the Makers, and I'm actually in a shed with a herd of goats because they are the real producers. Mm, nice. Um, <laughs> But, and the other thing is we have an interactive map on our website, which is updated constantly with all, and it's a, a pin drop location and you can search it by the product you're looking for or by how close they are to you. So, you know, when, when BLAS started, we set out a very simple mission statement, which was to find the very best of Irish food to recognize the people who make it, to create a network of Irish producers and to bring it to the attention of the consumers. That's And no decision that we make can veer from that course. So, um, yeah, Fallon will tell you she hates traveling to see producers with me because, like, I'm into the nuts and bolts. I'm looking at how the factory's running. You know? Literally, of the bottling machine. Or yeah. of, he wants to see inside the machine and I'm trying to keep the the schedule for the rest of the day on track. I'm really pleasantly surprised to, to hear all this stuff because it sounds like you've really created a community amongst all the different producers. And I think we often see a lot of different businesses offering awards in all sorts of industries. And those are, they often turn out to be kind of business opportunities in and of themselves. I think what you're doing, it sounds like what you're doing is really very different from that. Not only is your process really scientific for judging, but you are able to give feedback to the producers, whether they are the people that are successful or unsuccessful. It sounds really like you have a great system and that you're building community by, by promoting the makers too. Thank you. And Actually, one of the other areas which we haven't mentioned, but which is very different to other awards, and we often have to kind of make sure producers know this, but when it comes down to the time when the awards are announced, in a lot of other awards, it is about that business opportunity where people are booked at a table and they're going to pay for their plate and they're going to be black tie and they're going to kind of sit in that space for a couple of hours waiting for awards to be announced. In our case, we... Build. Last year, for the first time, we built a new venue, but we've always had a place which feels like a village where people can, it's very informal. We are bringing them down, they get their announcement and we want them back out and networking with the buyers who are down or the journalists who are down or more often than not, the more important people to meet are the other producers because they may find ways that they can work together. 
so we would see people in that village in their in their jeans and their sweatshirts and if the weather isn't kind to us in their raincoats and it's a really kind of as you say a community atmosphere that's there and that's one of the ways that it's very different to other awards yeah and i suppose you can say like they feel it it's in the food industry calendar of the year it's now become the date the and the place to go to dingle as a destination for both the festival and the awards but as Fallon said, we created a village. And you know the old saying, it takes a village to, to raise a child. Well, a lot of the producers that are coming for the very first time have been knocking on doors to meet retailers with potential customers, whatever. They're all there. They're all there and they're in a relaxed social atmosphere. Um, we have another arm of what we do, which is something we're very proud of, is we have an educational arm which once you've reached the finals you're entitled to partake in training and it be it online or in person so we have teams of mentors who work to a group or one-to-one to i suppose make sure that those businesses stay on track and stay in business because uh, as a food producer because back in the day when i had the factory i was in seafood products and I can tell you how to shut down a food business mm, mm-hmm. because I didn't have mentors and I didn't have people to talk to, you know. And some t- sometimes, I suppose, with the social setting of the Bloss Weekend, there is a chance for the networking of the producers and they all have the same problems. Do you know what I mean? And some of them are a little bit further along and can tell you how to solve it. Are there any new categories coming in that surprise you? And related to that, are there any new products that you all would, because obviously you're paying attention to this, you know, various trends, probably internationally and everything. So are there anything like, is there anything on the horizon that you would be looking to in terms of new categories, new products, or, or even new projects like you're describing for the community building efforts for your, for your work? I think probably over the past few years where we started to see in terms of categories, more of the fermented products. So we are definitely seeing more in that area. Really strong entries coming through from there. Um, Where Artie had mentioned the ready meals, we've seen the quality getting so good there, particularly where it's coming from independent, it could be independent shops or butchers, and they're then pushing the other producers, the larger producers are being pushed then by the quality that the smaller producers are doing. So to see smaller producers getting into those categories where they mightn't have been before, that's been exciting to yeah. see happen. Yeah. Um, and actually, one of the ones which was interesting last year, which came through as a winner, was a new product to us, but it's from a really old recipe. So there's producers in Offaly called Wild Irish Foragers. So Sharon and Gordon there, they won last year for a product that was a dandelion preserve. And they, in the old recipes that they've come through in their family hands, it's a what would have been called a poor man's honey. So for something which was very old, it was completely new to me, certainly. And that was really exciting to see coming through because it's another alternative and it was delicious with goat's cheese in particular yeah very good with goat's cheese <laughs> wow that's really cool i mean and i know found you have an interest in sort of historic recipes and i'm wondering are there any products are there any other products that you've seen that kind of seem like they perhaps were really common then disappeared for a while and are now making a comeback well i knew actually so i'm glad you asked that because a new category for us which is really good to see coming through is in particular some of the potato-based recipes. So there are more producers now who are making box tea and making it really well. Mm-hmm. And where it was a product that would have been very much kind of thought of as kind of the Midlands and kind of slightly north in the country, it's all across Ireland now. And I don't know if you remember a good few years ago when one of the first entries for box tea came into the awards. Yeah. And they sent us a, a note 
where they had very detailed cooking instructions because they said, sure, people in Cork would know how to cook box tea. But now, I mean, we can pick it up now in our super value here. You can pick it up in shops that are beside you. Um, so it's exciting to see that which would have been very traditional become something that's accessible all across the country. Mm -hmm. And there's been an awful, well, there's been a, a lot more um, expansion into the charcuteries because people have traveled and they're looking for chorizos or, you know, they're looking for the different, what they've experienced abroad. And now they're coming back and saying, yeah, I had that abroad, but it's not as good as the one I'm getting here because the raw material is better. Do you know what I mean? We're, it's choice cuts that they're, they're using. So that's that's very, very interesting. Like there's pepperonis, there's salamis, there's a lot of influence from outside coming into our daily foods. And you asked there about historical or old recipes and she's going to kill me for this, but Fallon actually is the the keeper of all the cookery books in my family. So she's working on a project at the moment, um, which is my kitchen shelf, and she's publishing the recipes, but she tries them before she publishes them. And one of the most recent ones from my grandmother's recipe book was vegetarian sausage. So... Where we've seen the trend in vegan and vegetarian and the change of dietary specific diets, this was all there before. This is not new, you know. But the only thing you'll see in the, the change is seasonality. The products that are using at different times of the, the year were to the seasons, you know, like our summer, our summer strawberry tart, not our winter strawberry tart, you know. So very interesting from the history side and the source but i think the products back then were very good and they're still good so like boxty is lovely you know it's just called boxty in one place and farl in another place and potato cake in another place but it's you know and it all has ireland's a very small country you know but it all has regional influences and in a discussion yesterday about meats where we have a lot more categories in meat than we have in lamb because predominantly meat beef is the is the one that's eaten here where lamb was always reared in the mountains on poor ground so like ali who, who fallon mentioned earlier on is from an area which the pasture land is fabulous and she said yesterday i've never eaten lamb why would she? Because the beef in her area is so good. But then I turn around and I say, well, I'm living in West Kerry and you can't beat West Kerry lamb because it lives on a mountain. Its diet is herbs. They're up and down the side of the mountain. So it's leaner, it's less fat, and it makes for a beautiful product. But it's uh, it's funny when you look at the history of the, the growth of Irish food. And I know that I think one of your earliest guests said something about Guinness and potatoes. Yeah. You know, and tell you that this much, there's nothing wrong with Guinness and potatoes. <laughs> you know, it's sad, uh, but it's not our staple diet. And I think coming from your own background, Max, um, like it's kitchens, and I think you were front house, Kate. Yes. So yeah. the understanding of what happens in the background and the understanding of using the older, simpler, like fermented foods. You know, it's not something somebody discovered last year, but it's growth like kimchi and all of that now. Massive growth here, massive understanding of what it is and more a wider audience. You know, we talk to most of our guests on the show. Um, you know, we like to ask the question, what is Irish food? Because a lot of people in the United States really have no conception beyond the kind of food that you would get in a pub, which is very much a potato based, whether it's shepherd's pie and chips, mashed potatoes, roasted potatoes, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of the Irish people that we talk to, which you kind of just did mention the ingredients and the produce, including the beef and the lamb and the, the animals in there as well, but just the quality of the ingredients that you can get We've been to the McCroom Buffalo Farm and had the Buffalo mozzarella. And that's something that you wouldn't expect to find in Ireland. Um, 
that was going to be my last question or my next question about how the food landscape has changed. But I think you, I think you kind of filled in all the blanks there. <laughs> mm, I got lost on Johnny's farm as well. And the story behind it is like the land he farms is so poor that cattle didn't thrive, but buffaloes love wet, mucky ground. And uh, like he's exporting mozzarella to Italy now. Yeah. Who would have thought? I mean, like Kate was saying, I think what drew us to drew us to Irish food in general was that it starts with the people and the product itself, as opposed to some sort of high concept. And it's like when when the raw materials are good and they're handled by people that treat it with care and respect, what comes out is incredible. And I think you guys have built your project on realizing and, and realizing that as well. We're well, we could we could talk for hours, but you know, because we're talking about the thing we're most passionate about. I know. Well, we always like to just quickly ask before we conclude if there is anything that we missed that you guys want to talk about. All I would say is, if you are planning a holiday and you're coming to Dingle, the best weekend to come is the first weekend in October, because that's the Blossom Food Festival weekend. Now, I will say for a town that has a resident population of I suppose 2,000. Last year, they estimated we had nearly 40,000 visitors on that weekend. Oh, wow. wow. So, so it's a bit crowded. Own, bring your own uh, caravan or pop-up <laughs> tent or something, right? But it does sound really fun. So we'll, yeah. have to make a trip. we'll have to make our trip over for that. So would we have to move to Ireland before Max could have an opportunity to be a judge for that? <laughs> no, you just have to no, be here in the you just got to be here in the summer. Okay, I'm going to clear my calendar. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This is a great chat. Yeah, thank you. I really love talking to you about everything. Yeah, I'm looking forward to following everything. Thank you very much. It's nice to meet you both. Yeah, nice to meet you too. You too. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.